I'll pray, then we'll jump into it. Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to understand as we go through your word. Uh, speak to us, we pray. Pray your Holy Spirit will teach us, because we can't understand anything unless your Holy Spirit reveals it to us, because your word is spiritually discerned. So help us to humble ourselves and just realize that we can't do anything, but you can do everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 2, and last week we almost finished the first church, which is the church of Ephesus, and we're just going to finish that off. But before we do, just our normal revision, what is the outline of the book of Revelation? How is it broken up? Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. The things which you have seen is chapter 1. It's Jesus' revelation of who he is and Jesus' message to John. Then there is chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, and that is the church age. So we are living in the church age right now. And it started AD 33, after Jesus rose from the grave, and the day of Pentecost specifically. And that will finish, I believe, at the rapture. And then what happens in chapter 4 onwards, is the things which will take place after this, metatauta, after these things. So the church goes up to heaven, the rapture, I believe, and then there's the seventy tribulation, then Jesus physically comes back to the earth, there's a sheep and the goat judgment, then there's a thousand year rule and reign, and then there's a great white throne judgment, which is a judgment for unbelievers, and then there's finally the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. So that's basically the outline of the book of Revelation. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven messages or letters given by Jesus himself to seven specific churches that are located in what was then called Asia and what is now called Turkey. They're to each church, but they are for all of us. Each message is for all of us. So... The letters are generally made up of four parts. First, Jesus finds something good to say about the churches. Second, Jesus corrects something they're doing wrong. And third, there is an encouragement to persevere. And finally, each of the churches reveals something of the nature or character of Christ. So let's jump in. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the loveless church. This is the church of Ephesus. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, it says, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, quick revision from last week. Leaving your first love, if we fall away from Christ, our first love, it's called leaving your first love. So, what it is, is you're allowing something else, it could be anything else, to become more important than Him. So, for example, you're about to have quiet time in the morning and the phone rings. Do you answer the phone? Or not? You know, And that could be the first step in starting to skip your quiet time. Little things can become more important than Christ, and it leads to drifting away, and that's the concept here, drifting away. So if it happens, what do we do? To come back, in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. So I went through this last week, but just to remind you, it's remember, repent, and do again what you did at first. So remember from where you have fallen. The first step in restoration for the Ephesian church, and for us, if we drift away from the Lord, is to remember. We need to remember from where you have fallen. That means remembering where I used to be in my love for the Lord and for my fellow Christians. And repent, to have a change of mind and heart that leads to a change in behavior. We turn away from sin and turn to God, agreeing with God that his ways are right. Now, what are the first works? Number three says, do again what you did at first. Well, these are the first works. It says, remember how you used to spend time in his word? Remember how you used to pray? Remember the joy in getting together with other Christians? And remember how excited you were about telling others about Jesus? So, you know, when you first become a Christian, that excitement, that's the things you used to do. Well, get back to it. (laughs) <laughs> pretty simple remember repent and do again what you did at first and you'll come back to making Jesus number one now moving on to verse six it says but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate now we read about these guys these Nicolaitans in chapter 2 verse 15 and there it's related to the deeds of the Nicolaitans, is related to immorality and idolatry. Now, the early church fathers also confirmed that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is related to immorality and idolatry. And I've got a quote from one of the early church fathers. His name is Irenaeus. He's writing the late 2nd century, and he describes what he knew of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas, who was one of the seven first deacons ordained by the apostles. So do you remember how they had the problem with the widows in the book of Acts and they weren't getting a fair treatment and so the apostles said it's not right for us to wait tables so they chose seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and they were in charge of the distribution of food, money, whatever it took to look after these widows. So Nicholas was one of them. They led lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse or Revelation of John as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, another view of what the deeds of the Nicolaitans is, so there's two views on this, right? so I'm going to give the other view as well. And the other view is based on the meaning of the word. So, Nico means conquest and laity means 
people of the church. So basically, it could be that in this Nicolaitan thing, it could be that it's power over the people. They were trying to tell the people what to do. For example, I will tell you who to marry, where to live, and what to do. And also, more common these days, how much money to give, because I am your spiritual leader. Is that biblical? For someone to tell you what to do, basically, in that sense. I don't think so. Paul the Apostle had lots of authority, but this is what he said. We do not seek to have dominion over you, but we are fellow workers for your joy. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. We do not seek to have dominion over you, but we are fellow workers for your joy. Now, I've been in a situation where someone was going to these shepherding churches, they used to call them, but they might still call them that, and he wanted me to shepherd him, he wanted me to tell him what to do. And I wasn't really comfortable doing that, so I didn't. So don't allow people to control you, because most likely, putting all this together, the Nicolaitans were people who used and controlled people and encouraged them to live immoral and sinful lives so they could get rich and live indulgent lives. So basically appealing to the flesh, telling people they can do what they want, and people like that message. Now, Jesus says here, which I also hate. So, does God hate things? Yes, he does. He hates sin. Okay? He hates sin. One of the marks of a mature believer is that we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. We must have a firm dislike for the things of the world which are wrong, which go against what the scriptures say. In verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, he who has an ear, well, put your hand up and grab your ear. Does this apply to you? All right. Everyone needs to listen. What the Spirit says to the, not the church, but the churches. So again, the message from all seven churches is for everyone, both back then and today. And then it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each one of these seven letters apply to all the churches. But we need to hear. Remember what the scripture says? is um, James. One person is like a man who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like and he walks away. And it's like the person who hears but doesn't do. And then another man looks in the mirror and remembers what he looks like and that's like the person who hears and does. Now the second part of verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, to him who overcomes. Now, what does overcoming mean? Most of the time, we think of overcoming like overcoming sin, overcoming depression. But in this context, it's overcoming a coldness of heart. It's overcoming a lack of love caused by leaving their first love. In this context, this overcoming is overcoming their cold heart, overcoming their indifference their apathy towards God. And the promise that he gives them is, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Wow. Now where do we see the tree of life first mentioned? 
Genesis, yeah, the Garden of Eden. What was it like then? When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. And what happened every afternoon? Jesus himself would walk in their garden and talk with them. Now, God wants fellowship with us. These people had drifted away from God. They had stopped praying. They had stopped reading the word for themselves. And everything in the church looked great, but their motive wasn't right. It wasn't being done for love. Our relationship with God needs to be based on love. Now, this is interesting. Little tangent here. Remember Adam and Eve? They had two trees they could eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what would have happened if they had eaten from the tree of life after they had eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I'm going to read this verse to you. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. This gives us a possible answer. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, or angels, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, the way I understand that, I could be wrong, but the way I understand it is that if they had eaten from the tree of life, they would live forever in their sinful state. God didn't want that, so he kicked them out. But here, in this context, God is wanting them to come back into a relationship with him. Now, the tree of life is no longer in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is now where? It's in heaven. So, the next verse we're going to read, there's a tree of life right at the start, and there's a tree of life right at the end. So, this is Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So here... It's talking about fellowship with God. And the tree of life is in the middle of, basically, of heaven. Now, the paradise of God. The word paradise used to mean, or initially meant, a garden of delight. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful garden. Eventually, it came to mean the place where God lives. So, in other words, where God is, that is paradise. So, Paradise is now another name for heaven, because that's where God lives. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise, meaning heaven. Now, why did Jesus talk about the tree of life? What is it producing? It's producing fruit. What was the Ephesians church lacking? They were lacking fruit, okay? Because they weren't abiding in Christ. They had drifted away from Christ. They weren't walking in love. They weren't producing 
the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus is offering them the fruit of the Spirit. It's like an analogy here. Jesus is basically saying, look, you can be fruitful again. Because they were doing everything right outwardly, but there was no fruit because it was done from the wrong heart. Now, what I didn't do at the start of the Church of Ephesus, at the start of this section, was go through the history of the Church of Ephesus. So I'm just going to spend like one minute talking about the history of the church and then talk about the history of the Church of Smyrna, moving into the next one. So Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world and it had a famous church. Why was the church famous? Guess who ministered there? There was Paul for three years. It's the longest stint in any church, as far as we know. There was Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos who served there. Paul's son in the faith, Timothy, worked in Ephesus. And also, according to historic tradition, the Apostle John also ministered there. So this is one place where you could get good teaching. It had all the big names there. Had good teaching, good doctrine. Now, secondly, Ephesus was also a world-famous religious, cultural, and economic center of the region then known as Asia. And they had the Temple of Diana, and she is a fertility goddess worshipped with immoral sex. Now, you might remember in the book of Acts, the big riot, because they used to make shrines for this temple, and they got upset because not so many people were buying these idols. And this temple of Diana, uh, the temple of Artemis, was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it's got this pretty big description there of what it used to look like. And it used to be a major treasury and bank of the ancient world. So kings and merchants and even cities made deposits at this place. It used to be like a central bank. And Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. So it was a center of like the occult. And books containing formula for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city, says one person. And if you go back in the book of Acts, what happened? After the demon overcame the seven sons of someone, I can't remember his name now, the seven Jewish sons, fear went out into the region and they brought all their books and they burnt them, all the magic books. So basically God set his church up in Ephesus in the center of an occultic area. And the word of God was powerful. It went out. Now, how does the church of Ephesus fit into the prophetic timeline of the church? Well, Ephesus is the loveless church. And it is basically from AD 33 to AD 100. The characteristics of the majority of the people in the church overall at that time was loveless. That's how it became in that time. Now, Smyrna is known as the persecuted church, and that church went from AD 100 to 312 when things changed. We'll get to that later. So basically, overall, most of the church in those years, from AD 100 to AD 312, was persecuted, and they were a pure church. Now, Smyrna, what about Smyrna? 
Smyrna was a large, extremely beautiful and proud city. It was a centre of learning and culture and claimed to be the glory of Asia. It was a rich city. It had lots of trade coming, like you know, people buying and selling stuff. And it had its own harbour, just like Ephesus. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Now, myrrh is an aromatic resin used to embalm dead bodies. Remember the three gifts that were brought to Jesus when he was born? Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Gold for his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh for his death. Now, how do you get myrrh? Because it's a really good picture of the persecution and suffering that was happening in this town. It's a small, thorny bush, and they would just keep wounding this bush. They just keep piercing it with something, and the sap would come out. And they just keep on doing it to collect more and more sap. And the sap had an aroma. It was a fragrant sap. So that's basically what you'll see happening here. It's a consistent persecution. It's going to go for a long time. And the fragrance of Christ is produced because they're walking with him. And what about the spiritual state of Smyrna? Well, it was a city deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of the Roman emperor. And for example, one famous street in Smyrna called the Golden Street, you had all these temples. You had the temple to Cybele, Apollo, Asclepios, Aphrodite, and a great temple to Zeus. But guess what? People weren't so interested in those anymore. Guess what they're interested in? Not Jesus. There was the emperor. They were starting to worship the emperor. And this is important to understand why the Christians in Smyrna were persecuted so much. So I'm just going to briefly give you a really quick history of how emperor worship started. In 196 BC, Smyrna built the first temple to De Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. Now, once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to worship the dead emperors of Rome, and then it was only another small step to worship the living emperors, and then it wasn't much further to demand worship as evidence of political allegiance and civic pride. So basically, by the time of the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD, he was the first one to demand worship under the title Lord. Here's a quote which explains what people had to do. If you were living as a Christian at that time, what you'd be forced to do and why many people were killed. So emperor worship had begun as spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But toward the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christians had to do was burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, receive their certificate and go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. They would not call anyone else Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is their master, no one else. So, keeping that in mind, 
keeping the background of what's happening in the, the city of Smyrna is the centre of emperor worship. We'll read the scriptures. So Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So the first and the last, we went through this in chapter 1, it refers to Jesus being eternally present at the start. He has existed from eternity in the past and he will exist in eternity in the future. So he knows everything. He's been around forever, he will be around forever, and he controls everything. It's a picture of his omniscience and his omnipotence. Who was dead and came to life. Now, these people were being killed for their faith. These people were dying because they would not offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. And so Jesus comes along. And he introduces himself as, I am the first and the last. I am in control. I know everything. I am in control. Everything's going according to plan. Who was dead and came to life. Death cannot hold us as Christians. Jesus is saying, do not fear death. There is a resurrection. We should not fear death as a Christian. Death could not hold Jesus, and it cannot hold his people. And that's a promise we have here. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus knows everything about us. And what does he know about the church in Smyrna? Well, he knows their works, their tribulation and their poverty. Now, he knows, not just in the sense that he can see them, but he also has experience them in the sense that he has personal experience so remember that jesus is our great high priest who can sympathize with us because he has suffered in the same way we have suffered now their works despite the persecution and poverty they were serving the lord faithfully so very difficult circumstances but you see in a lot of countries today in the middle eastern countries and india and china and that where there's more persecution, the people just get down and they just keep working. They just keep serving. They just keep loving the Lord. Keep bringing people to Christ. Tribulation. Remember the compulsory emperor worship we talked about before? The Christians refused to call Caesar Lord and so were persecuted, many to death, because of their obedience and faithfulness to Christ. What they would do was throw them to the animals, burn them at the stake, do all kinds of nasty things to them. Now, poverty. This would seem strange because, according to history, Smyrna was a very rich and prosperous city. 
yet the Christians there were dirt poor. And the word poverty here is not just normal, I'm poor, but it's abject poverty. They had nothing. They were destitute. Now why? Because they were persecuted economically as well. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, The early Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So if you were a Christian, you'd lose your job. You had no economic status. You couldn't get work. And what you did have probably taken from you because you're low social status and people could just do what they want to you. You know, this is happening today as well, this kind of economic persecution. You know, in many countries, if you're a Christian, you don't get the good jobs. And like in India, for example, there's a lot of poor people who are Christians because they cannot get work. And their suffering is very intense. But God is continuing to work in their lives and provide for them. Now, the next part of that verse says, I know the blasphemy. Now, not only were they suffering from the government because they wouldn't burn a pinch of incense to Caesar, not only were they suffering because they were dirt poor, because they couldn't get work, and they were suffering economic persecution as well, but they were suffering at the hands of the religious Jews. The Jews would try and take the focus off themselves and put it on the Christians. They'd shift blame to the Christians. And what does Jesus say about them? He says, Those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whew. Jesus just doesn't mince words, does he? He just says what he means and means what he says. So historically we know that there was a large community of Jews in Smyrna who were hostile towards the Christians. Now, this verse tells us that the true Jew is one who trusts God and believes in Jesus Christ because it calls these Jews a synagogue of Satan. Now I'm just going to put Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 on the screen. It says, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. So it's the Jews who were saying to the early church, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to keep the law to be saved. But here it says, no, we rely on what Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. So the true Jew is the one who believes in the Messiah. Now, does it mean that the nation of Israel has been done away with? No. Okay. So God is still working with them. They've been blinded, but God will work with them again later. Their time is still coming. He's brought them back into the nation, but they haven't been restored spiritually, not as a nation. So Jews may be Jews ethnically, a part of the nation of Israel, but they are not Jews spiritually before God. Another way of saying this or understanding this is that the unbelieving Jews were physical descendants of Abraham, like through Jacob, 
but they're not spiritual descendants because they're not walking by faith. Because I am a child of Abraham, not a physical child, but a spiritual child because I'm walking by faith. I believe by faith. Saved by faith. Now, as an application, just because someone knows the Bible well, it doesn't mean they know God. Unless a person is born again, the Bible knowledge doesn't profit them because the spiritual truth contained in the Bible can only be spiritually discerned. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14 says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, notice who our teacher is. It's the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit teaches. So when we come to God, when we read the Word, we need to be saying, Lord, please show me, please reveal to me your truth. Now, bring to remembrance. He brings to remembrance. Now, if we don't read the Bible, there's nothing there to bring to remembrance. Does that make sense? Look, I'm really forgetful. (laughs) And... I'm really glad that the Holy Spirit brings things to remembrance. Just at the right time when I'm talking to people or preparing a message or whatever, the Holy Spirit brings things to remembrance. I might not remember it for a long time, but he brings it back. So it's really important to get into your word and to read through the entire Bible because God can speak to you through any part of the word. Now in verse 9 it says, I know, and then it says a bit later, I know. Now when we go through hard times, We can think that God has forgotten. We can think that I'm all alone. God is up in heaven. He's enjoying himself up there. But Jesus repeats himself. I know what's going on. I know. And for me, a really comforting verse which relates to this is Isaiah 63 verse 9. It says, In all their affliction, He was afflicted, or in the New Living Translation it says, in all their suffering, he also suffered. So what this is saying is that Jesus walks with us. He knows and he understands. So when you go through hard times, just remember that that your Savior is walking with you. He understands what you're going through. Now, what does Jesus think about the church in Smyrna? In verse 9 it says, but you are rich. Hang on a second. If you went to Smyrna at this time, if we time travel back, the Christians would be dirt poor, right? God sees things differently to us. Jesus considered them rich. So we need to see things as God sees them. It's really easy to see things from a worldly point of view and not from God's point of view. Now, what does it say in Revelation 3.17 in the church of Laodicea? This is the opposite because the Christians at Laodicea thought they were rich. They thought they had everything together. And what did God call them? He said that they're poor. They're spiritually poor. So Smyrna 
was a rich, poor church. Laodicea was a poor, rich church. (laughs) And it's better to be a rich, poor church than a poor, rich church. It's an application for us now, and that is in our Western materialistic world, and sometimes in my own life, I've made the mistake of focusing on getting money and things, you know, mammon, wealth, anything that requires money to purchase. And it can pull our heart away from God. We can spend time doing more work to get more money, to get more things, but it robs us of our time with God. And I've got a story here. It's from the Renaissance papacy. The Catholic Church is really strong. And there's a man walking with a pope, and he's looking at all the splendors and riches of the Vatican. And the pope told him, we no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. His companion replied, but neither can you say, rise up and walk. So the church was rich, but they were poor. Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So now Jesus gives some instructions to the church of Smyrna. So the first instruction is, do not fear, and literally translated, it means stop being afraid. Now we see Christians who are being martyred and persecuted and having their stuff stolen from them and families thrown in prison, and we think, wow, you know, God's really supporting them and it's easy for them. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. They're not superhumans, and we don't appreciate the depths of fear that they struggle with. If we were in their situation, we'd be scared too. So stop being afraid. Jesus is saying that these things aren't going to go away. So stop being afraid. Put your trust in me. And he's going to give them a reason for them to put their trust in him. Now the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So they're going to be imprisoned. What does it mean to be imprisoned? Well, back then, prison was very severe. It wasn't used to rehabilitate someone. It wasn't like you go in the cell and you've got a nice bed and the TV and the internet and all that kind of stuff. No. Prison back then wasn't even used to punish someone. Normally, you were thrown into prison as you awaited trial and execution. So to be thrown into prison was basically saying you're going to be killed. Now, the persecution, who's it from? The devil wanted to do it, okay? Or the devil will and did do it. A quote here from Barclay, For a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life in his hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. So that's basically what it was like for them. 
And then it says you will have tribulation 10 days. What does the 10 days mean? Well, some things in the book of Revelation are like pictures. And where we can, we take things literally. And sometimes they're not meant to be taken literally. Sometimes it's a picture describing something. So I'm going to give you some views on what this means. You can make up your own mind. Some people think Jesus meant 10 years of persecution. And if you go to Diocletian, there was a 10-year period of persecution where the churches in Asia were really badly persecuted. But other people say in the years from 100 through to 313 AD, there were 10 Roman emperors who correspond to the 10 days spoken here. And they launched such massive attacks against the believers that between 5 and 7 million Christians were killed during their rule. So it's like 10 evil reigns, 10 waves of persecution. So that's what it could mean as well. So from AD 100 through, and even before, to AD 313. Personally, I'd probably go with the 10 waves of persecution because they were persecuted that entire time, right up to 313 AD. Now, that you may be tested, and the attack came from the devil. So why can't you just rebuke Satan and stop the attack? That would seem like a reasonable thing to do. Well, God had a purpose in the suffering. God is allowing the suffering. And you may ask, why is God allowing the suffering? Well, let's have a look. There's a couple of good reasons. Why does God allow suffering? Well, the first reason is that God uses suffering to purify his people. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So it's to purify us, to grow our faith. And secondly, God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. There's many verses for this, but this is one. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. This is Romans 8.17. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And the third reason is that God uses suffering to make us true witnesses of him. You might have heard this quote before. In all ages, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed for the church. The blood of the martyrs has been the seed for the church. And the principle here is it's only as we suffer that people can see who we really are based on how we respond to persecution, trials, and temptations. It's when we suffer that the love of God and his presence in our lives truly shines through. Now consider how different Jesus' message to the church of Smyrna is to the typical modern message in many of today's churches. So here's a quote. The saints at Smyrna had not been given a pep talk on how to win friends and influence people. They had no testimony of how faith made me mayor of Smyrna. They were not promised deliverance from tribulation, poverty and reviling. In fact, they were told it was going to get worse. So these days, if people are suffering, oh, God's going to deliver you. Hang on, 
he might not. God might have a purpose in this suffering. God is doing a work. And I think the same is true today. I think overall, things, based on what the scriptures say, that things there's going to be great apostasy, there's going to be lots of bad things happening. Things are going to get worse before they get better. They'll only get better when Jesus comes back. Not saying that there's not going to be people getting saved, but it's going to be harder and harder to live as a Christian as we lose more freedoms and rights regarding worshipping and obeying God. Now, in verse 10 it says that they may be tested. Now, this is testing as in the sense of being proven. Okay, So you're testing something to show that it is pure. And guess what? What are the results of the testing? Well, they passed the test. If you read through the other churches, five of the churches have a rebuke, a correction. There's no rebuke here. There's no correction. And I believe the reason is that the persecution that they were suffering was keeping them pure. It was keeping them focused on Christ. Because when we have everything we want, we forget about Christ. It's like the children of Israel. They went into the promised land, and while they were fighting those battles, they trusted God, but then they became prosperous. They had all these beautiful houses and servants and everything, and they forgot about God. And that's what happens to us. That's the hardest thing we have to do, is to push aside all the stuff that would take our mind off God. Remain true to Him, putting Him number one in every part of our lives. Now, for us today, we may not have the same opportunity to suffer for Jesus that the Christians in Smyrna had, but we can have their heart. We may never be in a place to die a martyr's death, but we can live a martyr's life. A martyr means a witness. Okay? Be a witness for Christ. And what's happening in today's Western culture is that Christians avoid persecution by conforming to the world. How many churches are there who accept homosexuality and women pastors and people living together? It's a whole acceptance of the world. Now, what happens if you stand up to that? Well, you get criticized. You get put down. Oh, well, I don't want that to happen. I want to be popular. And so we don't stand up for what's true. So. Be faithful unto death. And literally, it means become faithful unto death. Jesus is saying, become faithful unto death. He's saying, it's not going to get better. I want you to remain faithful to me, even if it's going to kill you. Why? What's his motivation? In verse 10, it also says, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, Jesus leaves them with this promise. It's the promise of the crown of life. Now, James writes about the crown of life. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, there's two different words for crown in the original Greek language. One word describes a kind of crown a king would wear, like kind of made of gold and jewels and stuff. Another crown is like a wreath made of leaves. And it's called the Stephanos crown. And it's worn on quite a few different occasions. 
Now, the first occasion you might get this crown is if you're a winning athlete, like in the Olympics, if you won a race, you get a Stephanos crown, this wreath of leaves put on your head. So the application here, it's like Jesus looks at the Christians of Smyrna and says to them, you are my winners, you deserve a trophy, and we're running in this race for God. The Stephanos crown was also worn at marriages and special celebrations, and so we can picture Jesus and his church each wearing their crowns. That's in their culture, that's what they would do. Also, the promise of a crown was meaningful for the Christians of Smyrna because of the following things. The city of Smyrna had a crown of beautiful buildings at the top of Mount Pagos. So at the top of the mountain in the center of the city, there was this crown of buildings, those temples and things. In Smyrna, the worshippers of pagan gods wore crowns, these wreaths. And also in that culture, good citizens wore these crowns. Now, if you're a Christian, you wouldn't be any of those people. You wouldn't be able to wear a crown. So God is saying, I'm going to give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you a wreath that's going to go on your head and it will never, ever perish. These people, they wear these things made of leaves, parts of plants woven together. It's going to go brown. It's going to be thrown out. It's going to be burnt. But the crown that Jesus gives, the crown of life, it will never fade away. Its glory will never diminish. So they're missing out on the temporary glory and privilege of the world, but they're going to receive something much better. So stay strong and endure the tests, temptations, because if we do, we will be rewarded. We'll be given the crown of life. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes should not be hurt by the second death. So he who has an ear, we don't face the same kind of persecution, the temptation we have to work against or fight against is materialism and lust. Okay, you look at what's going on in the movies, in the books, in the advertising, it's all lust. It's immorality. Now, I'm going to finish with a story from one of the martyrs of the time, one of the most famous ones. His name is Polycarp. He was a bishop or pastor of Smyrna. He was actually a disciple of John the Apostle. He was the last living disciple of John the Apostle. And he's a good example of both the persecution and the courage of early Christians. So the year is 155 AD. Polycarp has just returned to Smyrna from Rome, and a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. So it wasn't a constant persecution. It was like waves of persecution. It would be all right, and then bang, they hit them again. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over, like it was safe again. And Polycarp, yeah, it makes sense. You would too, you know. Bit of self-preservation kicking in there. And so he hid out in this farm. But then he had this vision as he was praying in his room, and his pillow was engulfed in flames. Now, he knew what God meant. God was telling him, you're going to burn at the stake. So the police came out. And they arrest him. And all the way back to the Colosseum there, you know where the lions are and they burn people at stake. So all the way back, they're trying to convince him, look, you're 86 years old. Just offer a pinch of incense to Caesar and you can go free. We don't want to put this old guy to death. But he said no. 
Now, he got to the arena. The games had already begun, and this massive mob of bloodthirsty Romans were there. And they were gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. Now, when Polycarp brought his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Now, why do you think God would have had to encourage Polycarp? Would you be scared? Walking into the arena with all these people yelling at you, that wanting you dead? Seeing the bodies of the other Christians lying on the ground after being mauled by the lions? And then in front of all these people, he defends his faith. He confesses that he's a Christian. And the crowd shouted, let the lions loose. But the animals had already been put away. The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burnt. So the old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow and he took courage in God. He said to his executioners, it is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a second and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. Can you imagine the peace in his heart, despite the fear? And so they arranged this great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle, and they tied Polycarp. And he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flame shot up into the sky, but never touched Polycarp. God set a hedge of protection between him and the fire. Just like John, they couldn't boil him in oil, so they put him on the island of Patmos. So, one of the soldiers, the executioner, he was in his furious rage, and he got this long spear and stabbed Polycarp with his long spear. And immediately, streams of blood gushed out from his body and put out the fire. When this happened, witnesses say they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. At that very same moment, a church leader in Rome, a long way away, named Irenaeus, said he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God had called his servant home. Now, this is not a thing of the past, all right? Christians today are facing persecution in Asia, Eastern Europe, all the Muslim world. Some people estimate that more Christians have suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. And it's continuing. People are still being martyred. Our brothers and sisters are still dying at an alarming rate. So we need to pray for them. Be aware of the suffering that they're going through. Now, finish with the promise of reward. He who overcomes, how do we overcome? We follow and stick close by Jesus, who is the ultimate overcomer. John 16.33 In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And his promise is that you shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death is hell, the lake of fire. Unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ here on earth and sent to the lake of fire forever. I'm just going to read one scripture to finish on today. 
It's an awesome promise, and it relates to the promise that Jesus has given to the church in Smyrna. Jesus has defeated death for us. Death for Christians is nothing more than an entrance into eternal life. It's like a doorway into the presence of God. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is near. He's waiting for us on the other side. So the verse I'm going to read is 1 Corinthians 15, 53-58. For our dying bodies, I like that, our dying bodies. We like to think of our bodies, I've got to do some workout, you know. No. Our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Father, I thank you for the awesome promise. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And you also promise that you will save us from the second death. Lord, we thank you for these awesome promises that you've given to this suffering church. Lord, when we are suffering, help us to hold on to these promises, Lord, that we can overcome. You have given us the strength to overcome. You say, overcome, and you don't ever tell us to do something that you don't also give us the power to do by your Holy Spirit living in us, that resurrection power. So, Father, help us to be strong. Help us to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to put aside anything that could be distracting us, anything that's more important. We're willing to give up everything for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.